Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for the time that we can spend hearing from your word, that we can sit, as Mary did, at your feet, even though you are not here physically. Uh, You are here in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, which lives in the hearts of all believers. Uh, You are here in the convicting power of the Spirit, which, which, as John chapter 16 says, convicts those who are not yet your children, those who are still in the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and calls them into belief. And so we thank you for that, that that you are here and you are working. And we pray that as we hear your word proclaimed, as we hear the truth of your word made known, we pray that the Spirit would work in our hearts to transform us. In the book of Acts, Stephen called those who resisted you stiff-necked and stubborn, always resisting the Holy Spirit. And we admit, Lord, that though we are those who say that we believe, many times we fool ourselves. We are self-deceived and we believe in principle, but we do not let the seed, the root, penetrate deep down into our souls and to challenge us at the root of who we are. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would dig up unbelief, and pride, and the desire for power, or approval, or comfort, or control. And that we would sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, and hear your word, and embrace your will, and your way, and your plan, by your grace, and for your glory we pray. Amen. A Bible scholar by the name of Erdman, who wrote a Bible handbook, says this about the passage that we just read. He says, it is to be regretted that this passage has become the occasion for endless debate as to the relative merits of Martha and Mary. Uh, Every time this passage seems to come up and uh, and is discussed, uh, I hear people say things like, you know, Mary. I want, to be, I want to be like her. I want to be not so concerned about things that need to be done and want to be focused more on sitting at Jesus' feet and learning. That's one reaction that I hear. The other reaction is this. Mary, you know, she didn't do anything. Martha is the one who, who did things. And we know that stuff's got to get done. 
And so let's all stop knocking on Martha and realize that Martha was the one who put the food on the table and Mary, like, abandoned her, you know? Um, so there's these, there's these two reactions. And Erdman says it's to be regretted that this passage has, has created this, this distinction. And we're going we're gonna to focus on that in just a couple moments. When we come to the story, the difficult journey had begun. The, the weight and weariness in the voice of Jesus could, could probably be heard if you, if you read the passages, understanding that Jesus is not just a Bible character on flannel graph or in stained glass, that, that he had lived the years of his life up to this point. He's 32 now, maybe 33. He has lived as a, a workman. He has done business. He has um, cared for his family. And now he has left his mother behind, left the village where his brothers and sisters live and has begun this preaching ministry. But he knows he is going to a cross, even if his followers will not believe it. And so the time is drawing near. In Luke 9.22, Jesus says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Disciples are probably thinking, wait, Messiah is supposed to go to Jerusalem and everyone gets behind him. He wins the, the primary and gets the nomination of the party. And he becomes the, the leader that we've been waiting for, the, the son of David, and he kicks Rome out. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He says that he's going to be rejected and be killed. And on the third day, he'll be raised. And then he said to all, if anyone would come after me, I'm going to Jerusalem. If you're going to come with me, if you're going to, you're going to be on, on my team, you're going to follow after me, you're going to follow in my footsteps, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Uh, the message at this time is, is taking a bit of a downward turn in the disciples' uh, opinion. They're, they're saying, no, 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 this is not the message that wins friends and influences people and increases our tribe. People are leaving. They're going away with this message, Jesus. We need to, we need to think about this. This is probably right about the time when Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The life of Jesus at this point is full of, of activity. He is healing, teaching. He is engaging in disputes, and they're increasing the disputes that he's having with religious authorities as they, as they peck at him um, because of, of the way he's conducting himself. Jesus is managing the disciples and their conflicts. He's training them. He rises early in the morning to pray. In the middle of the day, he, he is probably weary. He's got a plan for tomorrow each and every day and say, we're going to go here, we're going to go to this village, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And likely soon after dark, Jesus would be found sleeping, resting for the next day. Just this endless cycle. The crowds are thick surrounding him. So one day they enter the village of Bethany, just a, a few miles away from Jerusalem. A woman named Martha meets them and invites Jesus into her house. 
Uh, as word comes that he will arrive, he's traveling with a, a thick crowd around him, people who, who are joining up, you know, encountering him and asking him to do things, uh, to heal them, to, 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 to teach them, to, to mediate for them. Uh, she would rush home and sweep the house, right? Pick up. Isn't that the greatest way to get your house totally spick and span clean? Invite somebody over, and then you're like, we've got we to gotta clean everything. You know, declutter really quick and get it all, all perfect. She, she welcomes. She's planning to welcome Jesus to be extremely hospitable. She's probably beaming, excited. This is a good kind of a pride, right? The, the, the villagers around would hear that Jesus was coming to her house, and she would serve him good food. Uh, and to any guests that he brought with him. The preparations would have been immediate, hurried, but she can do this. Foods would need to be uh, gathered and and prepared. I imagine the meal, looking at the list of available foods, might have have looked like this. I did consult with our uh, resident chef and and thought this could be what was on the menu. Perhaps a, a white bean dip with fig chutney, right? She'd make flatbread, kind of like a pita chip cracker to, to dip. Stuffed olives from the Garden of Gethsemane and grape leaves with feta cheese. A, a bulgur wheat salad. There would be bowls of, of hot lentils, a kind of a soup in, in the middle. She'd wow them with, with little pieces of flatbread with curried goat on them. Little little uh, little appetizer there. A curried goat bruschetta. And for the main meal... Grilled lamb chops with pomegranate juice and Galilean sautéed red snapper with roasted corn beurre blanc. How'd I do? Did I do good there? Good. Okay, good. And just to finish the meal off, she'd whip up uh, some kind of fig and honey creme brulee. Let's just imagine she's got a torch in her kitchen there. So Jesus enters the house and he's shown to the place of honor, right? Lazarus, her brother, the man of the home, seated at his right hand. Peter at the left. No, not Peter. John got there first. No, Peter picks up John and moves him out of the way, and then Judas takes the spot on his left. James and John fuming and bickering, you know, perhaps Jesus uh, darting his eyes at them occasionally until Martha swoops in. Fixing the situation, just putting down a, a, a little bit of white bean dip with some perfectly seasoned uh, flatbread crackers in front of them. Here you go. Eat up, boys. The main room of the house continues to fill up. This uh, dinner reception that, that she's put together at last minute is going well. She is in the kitchen. She wipes her hands on her towel and reviews her mental list again. She's finished the dip. The salad is done. She's almost finished with another batch of stuffed olives and and grape leaves. She had everything working on the red snapper. The the roasted corn beurre blanc is going well. She'd sent a servant to market so that she could make enough uh, of the the curry goat bruschetta. Lazarus loves that. He always raves about that and says, make that. Since they had a little extra in the purse, she was going to go crazy and and make the, the grilled lamb chops with the pomegranate. That was her mother's recipe. The villagers would hear. The master would be pleased. He would stop eating for just a second as she moved busily through the kitchen, being a good host, from the kitchen to the main room. And he would say, did you make all this? This is wonderful. This food is excellent. Inside, she 
she felt strongly that Jesus was a good man, an amazing teacher. He was turning the world upside down. The, the son of David come to liberate them. The people loved him, but he worked so hard. People said he was always so tired at the end of the day. Many times he had hardly had time to eat a meal in the middle of the day. And, and sometimes at night there'd just be simple fare. Look at him. He's so thin. He needed to look after himself or he'd just waste away to nothing. Well, he wasn't going to leave her house underfed. Nobody would ever say that Martha didn't satisfy her guests. As the trays continue to go out of the kitchen, she's putting the finishing touches on the wheat salad. She smells an unwelcome smell. Something is burning. The lamb needs attention and, and the pomegranate juice is burning off. And now she can, she can tell just based on how much time she knows that she needs to cook that the fish is probably beginning to scorch. Another smell detected, alerting her, like in the days of Moses, of war in the camp, when they would blow the silver trumpets, she knows that, that all is lost. More and more people are coming to eat, and now uh, as she's, she's getting ready to serve more appetizers to them, she knows that the flatbread is, is burning it's as bad. She glances around. She realizes she has too much to do. She has too little time and too few hands in the kitchen. Frustration begins to well up in her and she curses herself for not being more like Abigail in the days of David where he was able to just, she was able to, to produce all that food as David and his men were, were riding into Nabal's compound to kill Nabal and, and she turned uh, David away with that gift. And, and as she, she realizes that, 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 that the meal could be ruined, the, the, the wave of tears welling up inside of her, she, she says, Mary, I need you to... And she stops. She realizes no one is hearing her voice. She's alone. Where's Mary? Her sister's supposed to be here helping her. And so she wipes her hands, her eyes scrunch, her mouth smushing into that angry line, and she goes out into the main room. The room is packed. It only takes her a second, though, to spot her sister's dress and hair. And there was Mary, not leaning up against the wall near the kitchen, not stopped for just a second, hanging on the amazing final words of Jesus' sentence. She had no empty or full plates in her hand. Full plates, she thinks, and she glances and the lentils that are supposed to be in front of her guests are just sitting there getting cold. Her hard work ruined. She looks around and she sees Mary. Somehow she has managed to wind her way into the crowd and scoot and to work her way through all the guests and she's right there, seated near Jesus, close to him. If she were just to reach out, she could touch his foot. And so being who she was. She waited just a second. Perhaps Mary would come to her senses and realize that there was work to be done. She's not moving. She's not moving. Take a deep breath. Count to ten, Martha. That's what Lazarus always says. One, two. No, she's not moving. <laughs> Jesus will help me, she thinks. And so she steps into the crowd. 
as the anger begins to build. She twists her foot each step and avoids stepping on a guest or their, their plate. She winds her way here and there. It looks like the grape leaves and the olives were a hit. Peter seemed to be enjoying the bean dip, but he should not be licking his fingers. She circles around and positions herself so she could see Mary's face, and she stopped. Lord, she began, wiping her hands on her towel. Do you not care that that my sister, looking at Mary now, eyebrows arched in a harsh V, she has left me to serve alone. Arms crossed dramatically, face pouting. Tell her then to help me. Mary and Martha lock eyes. Martha does this thing with her head, maybe. I am going to teach you a lesson. Perhaps, perhaps just a, a, a slight sneaky smile escapes as she realizes that she has put herself in a winning position. And then everyone in the room looks at Jesus. Martha, he says softly, and, and her heart wells up within her. She turns to him, perhaps a word about the olives or the dip. The, the flatbread, they, they might be the best that she has ever made. She, she seasoned them so carefully. She only uses organic dead sea salt. It's got to be the real thing. <laughs> Martha, he says her name again. again. Not, not the way that her mother or father would say it when they were trying to get her attention or to scold her. Sometimes when, when they were kids, uh, her father would say, Laza, Mer, Martha, and finally get to the name. That was always funny. But Jesus continues. Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. A wide, slow sweep of his hand indicates the many dishes and cups on the table, but one thing is necessary, he says. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. A few of the women hanging around the back of the room begin to move into the kitchen, perhaps because of the smells. Martha turns to go, tears now welling up in her eyes. But then she turned back and looked into the kind eyes of Jesus. She had done wrong and he had corrected her. But he'd been kind about it. Her spirit is now twisting inside of her. Should she sit? Would she sit? We're not given the closing reaction of the story, but this is, perhaps we can feel the emotional weight of how this would have unfolded. Interestingly, I believe that the the implications of our story turn on a single Greek word. And it's going to be hard for you to see this unless you have a copy of the King James or the New King James. Uh, Up until the the publication of the Revised Standard Version, the New International Version, the uh, New American Standard Versions, the translations read like this. Verse 39, King James. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, a modern translation, which occasionally when I look at it and I'm I'm struggling with something interpretationally, just knocks it out of the park. This is what the Holman Christian Standard says. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, Um, 
but I can mess around a little bit, and that actually probably makes me super dangerous when it comes to, to Bible interpretation. But I think that the, the myth of lazy Mary and hardworking Martha turns on this word. If she also sat at Jesus' feet, as I believe the Greek text bears out, because the words are there. I don't, I don't know why the, they, they, don't, they don't bring it into some of these modern translations. Um, that doesn't make them bad. It just means that the, the, the translators made different decision there. It indicates that Mary had taken part in the preparations. She had done what was necessary and customary, what would have been considered sufficient. But then she had sat down. Martha was anxious and troubled, bothered and burdened by many cares. Jesus teaches that those who are burdened with many cares need to realize that he is there and that he taught that there was no need to be anxious about tomorrow, that the Father was there and that he cared and that he he clothed the flowers and fed the birds and was teaching them that they should have no cares, but instead trust in their heavenly Father. And that a life free from care would mean that when the word was being served, all other service and activity could stop. Jesus was kind and gentle to her. He corrected her properly. Martha made a fuss in front of the guests, and in front of the guests, Jesus deals with her kindly and also redeems the choice of Mary. Ask yourself this question. If Jesus was there, if he had come um, into to your house and you were busy with much preparation and you said, oh, I've got so many things to do to make this perfect for you, do you believe that he would have told you to, to dial it back a little bit and to just take care and be simple about it? I believe he would have rejoiced in, in simple preparation and provision for his, his human needs. But Martha sought to honor Jesus with lavishness. And here is the danger. The more elaborate and complex our plans and preparations in the service of God, the greater the likelihood that our self can take the center stage in the midst of it. That self can sneak in and steal the goal away from us. Instead of it being about the goodness of God and the greatness of the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection to cancel out our sins and give us new life, suddenly then it can become our efforts must be recognized. What was it that motivated Martha? Was it a desire to be seen? Is it self-importance and pride? Is it fear of loss of reputation? She, she had thought maybe that, that Jesus would come to her house and she sent a messenger or she went herself to ask and he had accepted and now she had to rise to the occasion. Maybe it was a craving for the affection and commendation of the Lord that he would say, well done. And she would cherish, cherish and enjoy that forever. Our relationship with God is not built on what we do, but on what he does. Only one thing is needful, Martha. There's a, there's a richness in that phrase as he addresses Martha. 
my Greek professor, Dr. Howell, might have said it this way about these, this, these sentences here, that they were pregnant with meaning. I love that, 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 that the careful study, would, they would give birth to application in our minds. Martha desired to prepare many things, while Mary knew that only one thing was necessary. Martha prepared many portions, while Mary prepared only one, and her chosen, received portion then was the good one. Mary's preparation allowed her to sit and to eat the bread of life, while Martha was bound in the kitchen in a prison of her own making. She was starving herself of what she needed most, trapped there by her busyness. Thank you, Jesus says, for what you have done, Martha, though there's no need for all of this fuss. G. Campbell Morgan says this in his commentary, I can see her. I have met her in this life, haven't you? Those hurrying feet, those swiftly moving fingers, love suddenly suggesting to her something else to make the welcome more perfect. And so what is necessary by care and concern is multiplied by two and then by four and then by eight and then by 16. He says, she was a great soul desiring to express love, but when her plans were frustrated, she deflected her anger onto her sister and onto the Lord. Bible scholar Leon Morris says, life has very few real necessities. And if needed, we can do without much on which we presently waste our time. We believe, and I believe we, we believe this rightly, that Jesus appreciates all that we undertake for him. But we need to ask the question of, or, or we need to ask the question, is it God's desire that we undertake much for him or that we sit at his feet? Can love express itself ultimately in service of God? Or must it take the posture of devotion first? Which is better, to live a life of the contemplation of the goodness of the Lord or to live a life of action and service? Is it possible that in our devotion to the Lord, in our relationship to Jesus, that we can sustain a posture of endless giving Endless service of many things? Or do we need in Jesus' presence to regularly sit down, drink in, and receive? I think that Jesus, or Luke rather, views this story as a parable. Bethany in this house is the stage, and these two women are the players. What we have here is the answer to the question of which is better? Which is better? The life of contemplation or the life of action? To serve the Lord or to fill our mind with his glory and his goodness? I sympathize with Martha. I, I am on the side of those who say, but stuff's got to get done. You know, we, we need to be active in his service. There are, there, there's a need for more hands. Did Jesus himself not say, look at the fields. They are, they are ready for harvest. There are many who need to hear the truth. The problem is not that the grain is not ripe, but that the workers are few. And that there's a need for workers to be sent out. And so Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send out workers. 
I, I hear the story being told, and I think Martha knew that something needed to be done. She is a woman of action, and she expresses her love to God by acting. There are few who work in the kitchen and even fewer who are willing to wash all the dishes. We're told to serve the Lord. Luke 4, 8, Jesus himself says, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But then we also see in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, in the preaching of Paul, Paul says that he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And Jesus himself teaches in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I believe the the problem which, which creates the conflict is that Martha makes the mistake of letting her own preparations get in the way of what really mattered. In her frustration, instead of looking to the Lord and hearing his word and realizing the abundance of what she's doing, and how it is distracting her, she looks side to side and discovers Mary. She shifts from her devotion to indignation, and she vents her frustration on the Lord and at her sister, embarrassing herself in her her attempt to embarrass her sister, embarrassing her guests, opening herself up to gentle correction. Ephesians 6, 7, Paul says, Serve wholeheartedly. As if you were serving the Lord, not people. The error, I believe, that that Martha commits here is that she is serving the people not, not, not for the glory of God, but perhaps for the honor of men. Or perhaps for the attainment of a blessing or, or to, to demonstrate her own self-sufficiency. We need to guard against this in the Christian life, particularly when we attempt things for God. Which is better, to minister or to be ministered to? As we we drive to a conclusion, I want to point out five principles, and I believe they're they're, they're, uh, parallel principles that will point the way as we seek to conform our hearts and our church culture to the heart of God. Okay, here we go. Ready? First, ministry flows from being. Ministry flows from being. If you're taking notes and you're getting that down, I'm going to say it again. Um, Maybe you're not, but you may get like three points in and say, like, wait a minute, this is going somewhere. I'm interested in, I'm going to write this down. So ministry flows from being. What we do must flow from who we are. It cannot be reversed. Listen to what Jesus says about serving him in John 15, 5. He says, that apart from him, we can do nothing. All of our works, all of our service, apart from Jesus working through us by the power of the Spirit, all of our works are dead and empty, separated from him. So ministry flows from being. In order to accomplish anything, second principle, grace must flow in. We must primarily be receivers, even if we want to be ministers. Mary knew instinctively, perhaps, that she needed to stop doing and take time to just be in the presence of the Lord. What does the Bible say? Be still and know that he is God. That's a call to contemplation and devotion. The psalm, 
The favorite psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23, says that God, the shepherd, led the author beside quiet waters. What do you do beside quiet waters? You rest. You recover. You eat a little grass, right? You drink a little water. Mark 6.31, Jesus says to his disciples, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So ministry flows from being. Second, to accomplish anything, God's grace must flow in. Third, who I am is prior to what I do. We so often can get wrapped up around the Bible text and and we focus on the imperatives, the commands, and not the indicatives, what God has done. One scholar says this, Because God works and has worked, therefore man must and can work. Galatians 5.25 says this, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, right? The, the, the Spirit of God is in us. God is working in us. He has raised us to newness of life. He is, he is uh, dwelling in, convicting, empowering, creating, conforming us to the image of Christ. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. What, what actions are consistent with the Spirit? being in me. I'll embrace and live out the fruit of the Spirit. I'll say, in this situation, I should be loving. I should respond with love. That's keeping in step with the Spirit. Look at Colossians 3, 3. It says, this is, this is what God has done, and then we will see what we are commanded to do. Colossians 3, 3 says, you have died. I don't feel dead, do you? You have, though. That's, what, that's true. God has, God has done this. We've died, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. We're, we're in some spiritual place, safe. Paul says that when Jesus, who is our life, will appear, he will bring our life with him. Because it's him. And our life is, is hidden with Christ in, in God. Put to death, verse 5 says. Now, here comes the command. We, we focus. We say, no. We, we trick ourselves, and we think, I need to put to death what's earthly within me so that I can earn the affection of God and I can attain this truth. No, no, no. This, this happens. This has happened for the believer. He has died and his life is hidden with Christ and God. Therefore, he is able to put to death whatever belongs to his earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which are idolatry. Who I am is prior to what I do. Fourth, I cannot give away what I do not have. I cannot give away what I do not have. I want to share a word from God with someone. I want to share peace. I want to share joy. I want to encourage people to to grow in their faith. I want them to be stable or self-controlled or kind. But look at what Isaiah 50 verse 4 says. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. In order to serve in the spirit and power of Martha, right, and to accomplish something, we must first sit at Jesus' feet like Mary and hear. We must hear and receive and be filled and be full so that we can share with others. 
So we're getting close to the foundation here. We're, we're taking this journey towards the center. This is the, the, the fifth principle. Actually, there are six. I got my math wrong here. Um, I make it my goal then on a daily basis. This ought to be our, our regular focus to abide in the goodness and the love of God, to grow in grace, to accept to acknowledge it as real, and then to abide in the unfailing, never-ending, steadfast, free-flowing, undeserved, forever-lasting, incomparably lavish love of God. You thought Martha was busy making preparations? God exceeds anything which, Mar- with Mar- which Martha has done. He, he lays the entire... Uh, uh, a setting of the Old Testament to show us exactly how offensive and horrific sin is and what must be done to cancel it out. And then he sends Jesus to demonstrate his love for a sinful world. Let me show you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See, notice, what kind of love the Father has given to us. Let's unwrap it and unpack it and consider it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. We. Ephesians calls us children of wrath, but now we're being called children of God. And so, John says, we are. Ephesians 2, 4 speaks about God and says, God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Wow. That, my brothers and sisters, is the power source. That, as we we live in Christ and as we consider his teachings and as we center ourselves in who Jesus is and what God is accomplishing in us, we, we must stake our claim and build our house there. That God loves us with a great love, even when we are dead in our trespasses. And that ought to be the fuel and the power. And so we abide in Christ by believing truths of Scripture, by getting away into the secret place, the the, the place where we are away and we're absorbing Scripture and and praying. And then we're we're going out into uh, our church community and connecting with supportive people who point us to Jesus and who are willing, when we're going astray, to rebuke us with gentleness like he does. We abide in his unfailing love. Why do we do that? Because, look at your bulletin cover, okay? Look at, look at the cover of your bulletin. There's the logo, and right underneath it, it says, to know him. To know him. That's the goal. That's the goal that we're driving at, to know him. Paul says this in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not saying that he's hoping that he's going to attain the resurrection from the dead. He's saying that if my pursuit is to know him because he has known me and saved me, I just want to know him, I know that it will happen. 
But then we might say, can't all sit around contemplating the love of God. Stuff's got to get done, right? Everybody's sitting around knowing all the time, you know? (laughs) How are we going to get things done? Look at this. Also on your bulletin cover, right? We also exist to make him known. Jesus gives the great commission to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then at the end, he says, I'm with you, even to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 12, 5 says this, Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, to know him and to make him known. John 17, 26, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We know him. And it ought to be our goal to know him better and better, increasing in one degree of glory to another and attaining greater levels of of knowing Jesus, both in in our intellectual knowledge and then in our experiential living out the truths of God's word so that we can then turn and make him known. We make it our goal not just to abide in his goodness and love, but having done that, to having centered and focused the whole of our lives on absorbing all the goodness that God has for us in Christ, we then make it our goal to obey and express God's self-giving, self-denying, other-centered, white-hot, fulfilling, sacrificial love. We obey and express by speaking words of encouragement. He gave us the tongue of those who are taught. Why? Why does he fill us with the knowledge of his word as we, as we read it and the Spirit says, this is what it means. And good, uh, solid study teaches us this is what it means. Why? What do we do with that? We then speak into the lives of others. We extend grace to people as Jesus did. We offer and pursue forgiveness as well as working as peacemakers and we seek to build community. Little children, John says, 1 John 3, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What I have, here's the the corresponding principle, what I have, I must give away. I, 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 can't, I can't absorb the grace of God and receive it and just hold on to it. I need to give it away. Uh, we ought to have the spirit of Jeremiah here. He is, is speaking the words of God, and he, God says in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces? Jeremiah 20, verse 9, If I say, I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. We know something of the goodness and the greatness and the love of God. We must make it known. We must share. We must give it away. Because if we have it, we know that there is an inexhaustible, endless supply of it, and it is for others. Jesus, right, uh, took five loaves, two fish, and he broke it, and he fed an entire crowd. And then when they were all done, right, and the, the disciples each took a basket, and they were like, let's all clean up. Like, it's time to clean up. You know, and they, they walk around and they gather up all the food. What's left? Each one is holding a full basket of food. Jesus will later say to them, don't you understand? You didn't think there was enough to feed one person. There's enough to feed everyone here, and you got your own basket left over. There's enough to give it and give it and give it and give it and give it away. 
What I do flows from what I am. If you are a Christian, you can say this with confidence. God is in me. The Holy Spirit is in me. Jesus is in me. And as I abide in him and am filled up with him, it pours out and goes where the word needs to go. Because God is interested in being in your home and in your church and on your job and wherever it is that you go. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to this. God making his appeal through us. We appeal, we implore you then. He goes on to speak to the Corinthians. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why does God pour grace in? Because he loves fallen broken sinners and he's calling them to himself but grace is poured in in such abundant supply because it's meant to go and to flow through colossians 4 6 let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt the idea is is we're to go out into the world and to and to speak god's word in a way that is appetizing and appealing and full of grace john 7 37 jesus says this if anyone thirsts Let him come to me and drink. Oh, so good. I am so thirsty. I need the grace of God. I'm going to take a drink. I'm so thirsty. And then he says this in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That means you're not just going to take a drink and be satisfied, right? And be like, oh, that's so good, I don't need any more. It's that there will be so much water, so much flowing, that your thirst will go away. You'll be, you'll be satisfied. You'll say, this is so good. But then water will start shooting everywhere as it flows forth. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What I am determines what I'm able to do. I must be full. In the moment Mary chooses the right portion, she has set her life uh, in, in a course where, where she will be an expresser of God's grace eventually. She dumps the perfume and she's accused of, of waste because this could have been given to the poor, right? You see the emphasis on, on acting there and not on just being a worshiper. Work could have been done with that money, I believe Judas would have said. John's careful to point out that he was a liar. They would have sold that perfume. It would have gone into the purse and Judas would have taken some for himself. But in her heart, when she dumped that perfume, she would have been able to say, I worship, you are worth it. I will will lavish this worshiping act on you. And Jesus said it could not be taken from her. Another portion that wouldn't be taken away from her. She would have many, many, many opportunities for the remainder of her life to obey the second commandment and to love her fellow man, but only a few to love the Lord her God in person. A life of contemplation or a life of action? Psalm 86.11 says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So let me challenge you to to ask this question of yourself. Are you more of an acting person? Are 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 you sitting enough at his feet? Are you are you more of a sitting at his feet kind of a person? Are you serving others? Is there an area out of balance in your life that you need to address and correct? What one change could you make today to bring things into alignment? 
William Carey, who by faith in Christ went to India and established the the missionary footprint there, and I would argue set off the second great missions movement in the, the Christian church, said this, expect great things from God. Sit at his feet. Attempt great things for God. Go and be bold is what I believe he's saying. Our knowing God is the fuel of our making him known. Our love to God ought to fuel our love to man. And so as we close, my prayer is that this would be our legacy. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. We thank you for your grace and kindness to us. We thank you that you speak to us in stories that we can identify with. We thank you for these two sisters. And Father, I pray that that we would not walk away and say that was a nice story, but but that instead we would see a parable of two lives that we could live. I pray that I believe just as Mary did, that we would lay aside a life of busyness to earn God's favor, to earn commendation, but instead we would embrace sitting at your feet and absorbing and learning and knowing and loving and and then live it out by your grace. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see that it is not what we do, but who we are, who we are connected to. That, That our service flows from being, that it flows from who we are in you. And Father, I pray that we would then we would draw near to your son Jesus and receive all of his words. We pray also that we would not be those who just fill up endlessly, endlessly, but that we would go and work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in us. Paul said that he strove mightily according to all of God's uh, energy which powerfully worked in him and he sought to present every man complete in Christ. May that be said of us too. May we, having been filled up with your word, work hard in sharing that word and living it out each and every day. Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness in Jesus and we pray that you would make it so in our lives. Amen.